Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're starting off in Genesis 21 tonight. And it still gets me that we're already to 21. It feels like we just started. Um, we're in the middle of the story with Abraham. God in tw- chapter 20 has dealt with this sin in Abraham's life where he keeps lying about his wife. And it seems to be a sin that keeps coming back. Um, symbolically, there's looking towards our old life. Uh, and even though we're saved, it might mean that we're not still living in what God has for a plan for our life. Um, and that can mean sometimes that God holds off his blessings like he has with Abraham. But now that all that sin is dealt with, God's ready to test Abraham one more time. Um, and then kind of that gets to be the end of the story of Abraham. And then he's blessed. Um, a reminder as we go on with this that everything we're reading right now is prior to the law of Moses. So, and we get into what's going on and how things are going. And we're going to see things that are a reflection of the law but they're not the law. And Paul makes a big deal out about that because he goes to look at Abraham's story as justification for Christians, that the law was a season for the Jewish people and there's a before the law where God loved people and there's an after the law where God loved people. Um, Even with mistakes, God still accounts to or credits Abraham righteousness um, even though he's made a bunch of mistakes. Um, So as we get into this, we're going to see... that Abraham's about to get blessed and then he'll be tested. So in 20 and 21 and 22, uh, we're going to get a a mirroring or foreshadowing of Jesus's birth and crucifixion. And I'm not just saying that because it's me. I'll point out points in the New Testament where they say that's what we're supposed to see in these stories. Um, And I want to re-point out the point that Katie made after we got done, that 19 and 20 were kind of a tale of two cities. We got to see here's what happens to Sodom, and here's what happens to the kingdom of Abimelech. And I think we're going to see the same thing in 21 and 22. We're going to see two child sacrifices that get interrupted. And there's going to be two parents that try to sacrifice two kids, and there's going to be a contrast between them uh, that the New Testament tells us we should see as symbolic as life in the world and life not. So in verse 1, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. That's Abraham's old age, not the son's old age. And at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, and Sarah, and who was born to Sarah, Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? You all knew that. Um, we know that from Genesis 17, 17. Uh, and the, re- the laughter was Abraham's laughter of kind of joy when he heard about this from God. Uh, listen as you go through this story, like even in that passage we just got done with, there are 
a number of points at where the birth of Isaac and the life of Isaac reflect that of Jesus's. Um, and I'm going to come back to a few of those, but listen in the next couple of verses to see if you can hear some of those comparisons. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. Uh, and she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Um, there's key commentary on this narrative. Um, and just for references, you can go back and look, to, look at the narrative from Stephen uses this when he's uh, defending himself in Acts 7. Uh, Paul uses this in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 through 4. And James uses this in the second chapter. Um, where they all point to this story of Abraham having kids in his old age. And Sarah, Abraham and Sarah are blessed because they had faith, despite the fact that they had lapses in faith. And I think we've made that point before. Hebrews 11, 11 also gives us commentary on this passage. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Um, in other words, God has done some sort of miracle with Sarah because she's 90 right now. So she is not only um, a looker, but apparently can, she can still have babies when she's 90. And part of what made her laugh is she knew she was done menstruating. So there had to be some sort of physical renewal to support a child of some sort. Um, and God can do these things. When he makes a promise, he can keep it, even though what looks like can't happen can happen. So the birth is the essentially the second generation in the line of Christ. There's Abraham, now there's Isaac. In verses 1 and 2, God is focused on fulfilling his promises. In other words, it says, um, as he had spoken in verse 1 and in verse, two, uh, in verse 2, which God had spoken to him. So there's a huge emphasis in the first two verses, uh, basically pointing out to us, hey, reader, look, God does what he says he's going to do, and he's fulfilled. In verse 3, notice the respect and honor that they pay to Sarah. Or another way to interpret that verse three is that it's important that Sarah's the mother and Hagar's another mother. <laughs> but Sarah's the promised path. So, um, and Abraham called the name of his son born to him, who was Sarah bore to him. And they kind of make a side note of that because it's important. Verse three and four then also respond, Abraham's responding to God by being obedient to what he does. In verse three, he's obedient in naming Isaac, Isaac. And in verse four, he's obedient in carrying out the circumcision, which makes Isaac the first in the Bible to be circumcised on the eighth day, because everybody else that just got circumcised was circumcised at another time. Um, in verse 5, there's a reminder that Abraham's old, and that this has been 25 years since the promise was made that he would have a child. And I, I still think 25 years sounds like a long time. I think when you get older, it's supposed to not be as bad. Uh, but I just think that sounds like forever. But for God, that's what he does. He's going to do things in his own time. Verse 6 is a really cool line where Sarah says, God has made me laugh and all who will hear will laugh with me. Remember, she's using she's using two slightly different words there for laugh and laughed. Um, but they're pronounced exactly the same. They're pronounced Isaac. Um, so it's kind of interesting that God has made me Isaac and all who hear will Isaac with me. And there's just, she's doing a little play on words, which gives us a glimpse into Sarah's personality. At this point, instead of kind of complaining to Abraham of, about not having sons, we see Sarah making jokes. So she's matured a little bit. She's got a sense of humor that's coming in. 
Um, uh, oh, and the two words, the, the first word she uses that um, the laugh, the first Isaac, God has made me laugh, is actually laugh that go, is a noun. So it means God has made me a laugh or a laughing stock. God's made me a fool in front of people. And the second um, laugh that she uses is spelled like a verb. Um, so the, the hear will laugh with me. So essentially she's saying God's made me a laughing stock and all who hear will be laughing with me. And that she's now joining those people that thinks this is just God being ridiculously amazing. Um, verse 7 confirms that she bore this son to Abraham. Uh, that's an important piece because there's an inheritance kind of piece there. And with six, Sarah's giving the glory to God, which I think is amazing when you put those two things together. Um, no human could have predicted this, and that's the question. Who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? So it's not something that humans could predict or see. Um, and I thought an application thing here, and I think it's part of what we've been going through the last couple of weeks. That's why I'm skeptical when someone says they have a plan. Because the things that God is doing, we don't plan those things. We don't know what they look like, and we get we should be pretty skeptical when someone says they know what God's doing and they've got this thing that they've set up because they're not really trusting the Lord at that point. They're, they're trusting themselves. And throughout the Bible, we're going to see that God does things that humans just don't predict. God's plans are above or beyond our plans, and he, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, so in, in order for us to not confuse these things, it gets pointed out in verse 7 again. Verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned, which implies that Sarah was breastfeeding at age 90. Um, but he was weaned, and around this time they would have thrown a big feast. That would be Jewish tradition, and it would have started back here. It'd be somewhere between three to five years old, even though there's some scholars that think that they weaned kids at like age 10. I don't think so. I'm not buying that one. But most people believe this would have been when Isaac was three to five years old, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Uh, the birth of Isaac then was miraculous. Romans 4.17 says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him who he believed, even God who quickens the dead, called those which he had not as though that they were. So out of death, bring, God brings life. And he does it with Abraham and Sarah. They were not able to make babies, and now they are. Verse 9, Sarah saw the son Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had bore to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be an heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. So they're blessed with his son, and a few years go by, because the weaning would have been three to five years, and they're seeing this problem starting to emerge, which is the 13-year-old Ishmael um, has got some issues. And they even use the... Uh, the word scoffing in verse nine. So we don't get a sense. We get a sense of is Hagar doing the scoffing? Is Ishmael doing the, the scoffing? Um, note that Sarah in the verse nine doesn't name Ishmael. Uh, I think that's part of how she felt about this young man, that there's a lot of bitterness there. Um, so Abraham in the middle of where he should be blessed with this son God's promised him, he's got these problems in his household. And it's important to note that those problems come because God's not into polygamy. And he should have never had two wives. He shouldn't have gone in with Hagar. He should have stuck with his faith. But he did, and there's natural consequences to that. Now he's got a son of the flesh living in the home, 
and a son of the spirit. And that's not me saying that. Um, there's a couple different places where we see that that's kind of a theme or a, a, an interpretation. Genesis 2.24, we've already read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh, just like Grant quoted out to us. Uh, Jesus responds to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, verse 5, and he says, For this cause man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall twi- the twain shall be one flesh. It never works out to leave the marriage and to leave the sanctity of the marriage. Um, Hebrews 13 talks about that too, that you should keep the wedding bed pure. So um, Abraham doesn't, now he's got these issues. Uh, notice that Sarah points out that Hagar is an Egyptian um, and it's a kind of a cue to say that she's not really one of us, she's an Egyptian. Um, it's easy to read this and see that Jarrah, Sarah's jealous um, and angry, uh, but I think another way to look at this is if Ishmael is, say, anywhere from 15 to 20 years old here, and he hates this little kid uh, and resents this kid as taking away his inheritance, we could be seeing that Sarah's observing what could be a real potential threat to Isaac, just like Sodom and Gomorrah as kingdoms were a threat to this rising uh, Abraham nation that's growing in the hills. Um, and the word very displeasing. Abraham's heartbroken here. As, as much of all this might be justified, what's going to be coming, it's still super hard for Abraham because he loves Ishmael. This is his son. Uh, and in verse 11, it says, because of his son. He loves his son Ishmael and has taken care of him and raised him. So Sarah is seeing resentment, knowing this is fresh in their history. Uh, she's also thinking of stories like Cain and Abel right, where one son rises up and kills another son because of inheritance and because of competition. Uh, She also lives in a world where killing is common, and human sacrifice is part of almost every other civilization that's growing around them. So she's looking at some things that are there. Katie, you need to make him lay down, please. He's just looking around, seeing what he may devour. So God's setting in place what's going to be a key symbolic episode here, and it's important that this gets carried out according to how God wants it to be. So he consoles Abraham in the next few verses, but he also says Hagar's got to go, and I'll talk about the symbolism in a sec, but first verse 12. Katie. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because the lad, or because of your bondwoman, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called, yet I will make I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he's your seed. This is a really beautiful image that God's gonna take care of her, and he's trying to it God must love Abraham, because when Abraham gets upset, he saves Lot from Sodom, even though Lot's pretty self-destructive, and he's gonna save Ishmael because a- Abraham loves him. And I think that's God doesn't only protect Abraham, he protects Abraham's heart. And I think that's kind of a cool thought. It's also the only place in the Bible where God or a prophet tells someone to listen to their wife. So that is really important, that you should listen to your wife. But it, it's, uh, it doesn't really say the opposite. There's really, um, it's just that little piece right there. There would have been a much better day if Abraham had waited. And we see some indica- indications of what we've seen hints at here. The point of 
Abraham listening to his wife or listening to her voice is an indication that part of what God intends for a healthy marriage is that there's a team there. And we saw a hint of this before when Abraham went to Sarah to help prepare for the three men that came by their tents. But we see it again here where God's just saying, listen to your wife. She's wise counsel uh, and a man's a fool to not listen to his wife because his wife only has his best interests in mind. Uh, You're bonded for life. So when you're in a situation and and you have two people and and either the husband or the wife says, boy, I really feel like you're making a mistake, you should listen to that. You should at least stop and pause and think and pray and come to some agreement with your spouse in those sorts of things. So there's some marriage counseling for Alyssa. Um, Part of it, too, is keeping Ishmael around keeps a backup plan. And Abe's had problems with this his whole life. He kept the sheep herds. He kept Lot with him. He went down to Egypt as a backup plan. So he's always trying to like, well, what if things go wrong here? Then I've still got my backup plan. And this is one situation where I don't think God wants him to have a backup plan because chapter 22 is coming. He wants Isaac to be the only option for the inheritance because that's part of what's going on here. So God's made two covenants now. He's made one with Hagar out in the wilderness when she ran away, and he's made one, one with Abraham. So there's two nations that are getting formed here. And we keep tracking these two stories, and that's where when Katie said, wow, there's really two cities being told about here. we got to be conscious of the fact that one of these represents the world, and one of these represents a life, a spiritual life with God. Paul compares these two things as our choice between legalism and the law, and bondage, which was born of the flesh, and the promise, which is born of the faith, which is God and freedom. In other words, Ishmael represents bondage and sin and the world, because Abraham sinned when he made him, and it was human plans that made Ishmael happen. The faith was all God, and Abraham trusted in God. So we've got two children here. God doesn't use Ishmael's name, um, and at least he doesn't use it with Abraham in these passages. So we're casting a symbol that's set in history forevermore, including ourselves, that Paul really takes time with. So if you turn to Galatians 4, I'm going to read a bigger piece there where Paul does commentary on this story. Galatians 4 is forward in your Bible. If you get to the Book of Mormon, you've gone too far. That was for you, Grant. Page 832. In your Bible? In my Bible. New King James. 4.22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one through a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Uh, Verse 22, Galatians 4. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who was a free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic. So I'm not saying they're symbolic, Paul is. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. Mount Sinai is where the law was given, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds, to, and, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in the bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and is the mother of us all. For it's re- written, rejoice, O barren. Sarah would have been barren. You who do not bear, break forth in a shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, verse 28, brethren as Isaac was, are children of a promise. 
But he who has been born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Even so it is now. Those in the world persecute those in the spirit. And it happens again and again and again. Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul uses this story to say, you don't get to have it two ways. You can't be yoked with the world and live according to the spirit. The two have enmity with each other. And if Ishmael would have stayed in the house, he probably would have hurt Isaac because that wouldn't have been tolerated. The flesh always persecutes the spirit. Even in our own hearts, when we try to live according to the faith, the first enemy we have to conquer is our own flesh wanting to not live according to the faith. Well, I'm not going to do my morning devotions today because I'm tired. Or, boy, I really feel like having that extra Dr. Pepper before I go to bed tonight. Those are the things we struggle with. It's that day-by-day struggle with our own flesh to not do the right thing. Or i got to tithe my time on a Sunday night, like Alyssa was saying. Even though I'm super busy, the world comes in and creeps in on that idea of trying to commit yourself to knowing the Word of God and understanding it, praying it, going to church and being in a community. Those are things that, that our flesh will attack, I think even more so than Satan will come and attack us, right? Because if we're still struggling with our flesh, Satan doesn't have a lot of, a lot of work to do. But God has mercy on Hagar and Ishmael and wants the spiritual image to inspire Paul and help him explain his faith. God's setting this up because he knows that later on after Jesus is done, all these Christians are going to look back at these stories and go, wow, this was before the law was even made. And these Pharisees are holding us under the law like a prison. But we don't have to live in the prison. We can live in freedom. And Paul does this and says there's a bondwoman and even named Sarah a free woman that there's people that live free and people that live according to some rules that humans have made. So Abraham, like all Christians, struggle with casting out their old self. It breaks his heart to have to get rid of Ishmael. And in the same way, it hurts a little bit when we have to give up things in our life that we really, really like, but we know aren't helping us live for Christ. Like Abraham, we can be blinded to this. He doesn't see it. And his wife is even telling him, get this kid out of here. And the fact that God has to go talk to Abraham implies that Abraham wasn't going to listen to his wife because it takes God's intervention to say, listen to your wife. She's actually telling you truth. I was trying to work through your wife, but you're not getting it because you're a little thick or even worse, he's blinded to it. And Paul says the same thing. We're blind to our own sin. And a life in Christ is something that makes no sense to the world. Also remember the word scoffing was in there. Ishmael, Hagar, somebody was scoffing, um, and they're already beginning on the attack. Sometimes that scoffing comes before actual assault and those kinds of things. Note that scoffing is also the opposite of laughter, which is Isaac's name. So legalism is a form of slavery. Notice that we say bondwoman here. That symbolism shouldn't be lost either. Legalism is a bond to the flesh, and it can't be part of being heir with the spirit. Point made. Last point on this. Generally, persecution for Christians throughout history has not come from non-Christians. Most persecution, other than the Romans in the first century, most persecution has come from other Christians, saying, well, you have to do it this way, or you have to do it that way. I remember when I was a kid, I went to a church where we had to wear dress slacks and a belt, And if we didn't wear dress slacks and a belt, well, we were somehow less than Christian. Try going to that church and just wearing jeans and telling people to stick it in their ear. They, at some point, 
they would first scoff at you and mock you, and at some point they would have asked you to leave the church because you weren't respecting their legalism. And at that point, it's not to say try to try to be abrasive to other Christians, but when you get Christians where how you dress and how you act and what you do has to be conditioned by them, you got legalism. And it's one of the worst situations. So if you look at the Judaizers, Paul even gave them names. He called them Judaizers. Um, but later on, there was the Spanish Inquisition. There's the Anglicans that got whole boats of people to leave England because they couldn't just worship like they wanted to. And they were willing to go to a land that had like Native Americans there. I mean, when you look at the Puritans and when they came over to America, they were trying to escape legalism. They were trying to just live their lives quietly as they pleased. Um, but even today in the church, we have people that you have to do it this way or you're in trouble with those people. From this point on, uh, Abraham's going to rise early in the morning in verse 14. From this rising early in the morning, first of all, he's a morning riser. That's the second time we've seen that. Um, but Abe's going to be fully obedient to God from here on out. I think having Isaac and seeing that promise fulfilled made it really easy for him to be obedient to God. So he took a bread and a skin of water and put it on her shoulder and he gave and gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. This is immediate obedience. Uh, Abraham does it the next morning. The bread and water is a sign of mercy, but it's not symbolic of an inheritance. He didn't give her any sheep. He didn't give her any things. He just gave her enough bread and water to get to the next oasis, um, which means he's putting it off. The phrase putting it on her shoulder is still used as a symbol or a metaphor for responsibility. Ishmael's yours, and he's your responsibility. So Abraham's essentially kicking her out of the family. He's relinquishing responsibility here um, and getting rid of it. And in that sense, I think symbolically, if we're going back to that, if they represent the works of the flesh, um, then we should think about that with our own sin and stuff in our life. We get rid of it. We give it away. We take the responsibility for it out of our life and put it in somewhere else. But we can't keep ownership of it. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So she gets lost. And the water in the skin gets used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And then she went and sat across from him at the distance of about a bow shot. For she, she said to herself, let, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him, lifted her voice, and wept. Abe gave her enough food and water. So the fact that she got lost, um, she begins to succumb to heat exhaustion. She's in the wilderness. Uh, if she again went back towards Egypt, she would have been in the middle of a desert. A bow shot, I had to look this up. A bow shot today is about... If you're in an indoor competition, it's 20 yards. If you're in an outdoor competition, it can be 40 yards to 100 yards. So the longest we're talking about here is a football field away where she can see her son. He's, again, he's going to be in his late 20s. He's not a young guy, right? Um, so he must have been larger than her and maybe gave into um, dehydration sooner than she did. And she's not big enough to carry him, so... That's tough for her to do. So at this point, Hagar sits down, and that image of her, let me not see the death of the boy, she's come to the point where she realizes her boy's going to die. And she's accepted that. Her son is going to be dead. Uh, and we get really specific details on what that looks like. Um, and God heard the voice of the lad, verse 17. 
And then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? That's an odd question. It's pretty clear what ails her. And I, it always bothers me when God asks those kinds of questions that are painfully obvious. But usually when Jesus or God asks a question, it's because they're trying to teach. What ails you, Hagar? In other words, everything around you shouldn't bother you because I've promised that Isha will make a nation. So no matter how bad it looks, what's ailing her isn't the lack of food and water. What's ailing her is that she's lost belief that God's going to keep his promise and that her giving up is the problem here. Fear not. Again, God says that a lot in the middle of where legitimate fear should happen. I'm out of food. I'm out of water. Fear is a rational response to that situation. But God often says, fear not. Be of strong courage. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand for I will make him a great nation. This is really cool then. Then God opens her eyes and she sees a, saw a well of water. In other words, the answer to her problems was right there and she just couldn't see it. And sometimes it takes for us to lift our voice and weep before the Lord before that answer becomes obvious to us. And what an amazing moment when you realize God has the provision for you. It's right there. It's right in front of you. You just have to pray and kill open your eyes. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink, which makes the holding his head up make sense. She would have had to do that to get him water. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. So it sounds like they just made their home next to this well. And he became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So we get to see this end narrative with with Ishmael and Hagar, the story gets used throughout the rest of the Bible, but this is kind of the end of what we see from these folks um, in a direct narrative. Now consider the the comparative story with the one that's coming up. Hagar, like Abraham, is ready to see her child die. Hagar in desperation, uh, and Abraham's in obedience. Uh, There's a bow shot picture here, and then he becomes an archer, which I thought was nice irony. And this fulfills the promise that God made to her at another well when she ran away at another time. So God's met her twice next to a well. Um, And I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that when we're pretty much at the end of our rope, that's when God tends to show up in our life. So we shouldn't stress or become too anxious when we find ourselves getting to the end of our rope. We should turn to God and say, okay, I'm ready for you now. And it, it doesn't need to get any worse, Lord. I'm ready to cry out to you now. And then if you reverse that logic, we should just cry out to the Lord every single day early in the morning when we rise and say, Lord, I, please don't make me get to the end of my rope. Let me just honor you now and look to you for guidance right now, which is what Abraham does. And he doesn't get into these troubles. How many people do we know that aren't walking with the Lord that have stress and turmoil in their life? And then they want to tell us all about the stress and turmoil. And like Abraham with Hagar, it's kind of like, well, the stress and turmoil is kind of of your own making which sounds really heartless and cold, um, but a lot of times that stress and turmoil becomes they, because they worry about things that they shouldn't worry about and they don't believe that God's got a plan for their life. And that causes those kinds of situations. Verse 20, so God was with the lad. Uh, I think that's interesting because Abraham had abdicated responsibility. In verse 20, God takes on the responsibility and says that he's with the lad, which means he's basically, Ishmael gets raised by God which is kind of cool, and all the Muslims think that's really cool too. No longer Abe's duty, 
uh, it's God's duty. Um, and there's two words here, Rava, which is great, or that phrase, and became an archer. It's actually only two Hebrew words, Rava and Kashash. Um, and this is the only place where that word hunter is used in the Bible. Um, and it actually means someone you know who hunts or shoots things. Um, but they've been greatly or increased as Rava. So and became an archer actually should have something in there that I don't think the English captures, which is that he increases as a hunter, or that's how he starts to build his wealth and his nation. So maybe he's a fur trader in the desert. I don't know how that looks, but somehow or another, God's helped him to increase in that area. The other spot we saw hunter was with Nimrod. And that was a totally different word that meant more like to catch one or to snare something or to catch prey and take them into your service. This doesn't mean that at all. It actually means the kind of hunting that we think of. Out there shooting deer, eating it, and that's where he's getting his wealth. And by taking a wife from Egypt, he's taking one more step away from Abraham and the, the, the Jewish nation. So Israel, Ishmael, by all accounts, both Jewish and Arabic, becomes the father of all Arab nations. And the Arabs uh, claim Israel, Ishmael as their... Um, father or their ancestor and even today that's that's pretty undisputed um, and this is where we drop the story of Ishmael is when he starts the story to go lead these Arab nations so maybe there's another book when we get to heaven that tells us how that all happened um, interestingly we think of most Arab nations today as Muslim but the Muslim religion only started in the 700s so there was a period from Jesus through about 600 when all of these ancient kind of pagan religions evaporated as Christianity spread through the Middle East. And it was only the Muslim religion in 700 that replaced Christianity. But most of those Arab nations at one point or another were Christian nations. Even till today, um, you see these nations with all these refugees getting out. A lot of those refugees are Christians trying to get the heck out of the country um, because they've been living in peace in those countries for 1300 years. Um, but there's occasionally seasons where the Christians aren't welcome to those countries anymore. But there's Iraqi Christians and Syrian Christians and Egyptian Christians all over in these places. And they're really old Christians. Their Christian traditions go back a lot further than ours do. That said, it's just my dream when we get to heaven, there'll be bigger libraries. So I tend to imagine like, oh, there's got to be a book on that in heaven where we can read these stories and see what God's done. But God's been really merciful to those people and uh, has provided for them in the probably the most inhospitable land on earth. Um, and they've done fairly well for themselves. Verse 22, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pinchol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness I've done to you, remember last time we met, Abraham lied to him about Sarah, and then he made it right with silver and gifts and, and grazing land. You will do to me in the land which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I'll swear that. So some claim that this isn't the same Abimelech. I think it is because the passage is really pretty clear here. That don't deal falsely with me because he already had, right? He had dealt falsely with him, with my offspring, my prosperity, according to the kindness that I have done to you, past tense. So it's not a current kindness. It's, we're supposed to know that he did something kind. And frankly, when people put together things, they don't use the same name a chapter apart from each other and expect it to figure out that it's two different people. So I don't think there's a lot of evidence of that. But most Bible commentators, when you look at this Abimelech, 
believe it's the same one too. It's the same region, the same writer. Um, and God had said Abe was a prophet. So that has stuck with Abimelech, who was kind of our more righteous king, even though he was a pagan. Um, and God is with you in all that you do is a great phrase that says Abraham's life must have been a testimony. And our lives should be testimonies too. Even non-believers that know us should say, boy, God just seems to bless you. I remember I got a buddy and it was a long, long time ago. And I had, I can't remember what we did, but I'd left a position. And then I ended up in another position that was even better. And it was kind of cool. And my buddy just goes, I just don't get it with you, Dickers. You always seem to not only land on your feet, but God just puts you in better places than you were before. Like, I don't get how that happens. And I have historically been a rolling stone in the workplace. I just keep moving to where God has a new opportunity and what he wants to do. Um, and it's kind of fun when you live a life in such a way that other people notice, wow, you seem to do well. Um, even my dad shakes his head at me sometimes because I make really boneheaded decisions um, according to the world, but I'm feeling like it's what the Lord wants me to do next. Um, and then it tends to work out pretty okay. Um the other piece with Abimelech and why he maybe is coming to Abram right now is the fact that he has a child. This is clearly a miracle with a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old. And the king of this nation has probably heard about Sarah, and he's probably heard about Yahweh because they have interaction with each other. And he's wondering, wow, this is amazing. And remember, his whole household couldn't have babies, and then they could. And so he's respecting Yahweh at this point um, and wants to do that. So a tough, challenging question that I had to ask with myself is how many people in the world respect my relationship with God? Like the people that know me, if I had to count up all the hundreds of people that know me, both believers and non-believers, how many of them would say, I don't know about Sean's God, but there's a lot. Of, Sean is clearly a blessed guy. And, and, and I think in some ways that's half the battle with our ministry because nobody wants advice from people that they don't respect. So if you're living a life that's honorable, even though Abraham has screwed that up a couple times, Abimelech still seems to honor him. In verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants has seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing. You didn't tell me that, nor have I even heard of it until today. So is Abe trying to make another excuse here? Uh, is Abimelech has to claim that he's innocent and Abraham's got him in this negotiating position, and he's definitely pulling some strings here. And you'd think Abraham must have a really powerful group of people because he's talking like this to kings, kind of as an equal almost. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. So we get another sense where somebody feels like they've been wronged, and the response is to give gifts, which is not our culture today. Today we take them to court. Um, but Abraham gives gifts. And two of them made a covenant. So giving them sheep and oxen was a way to signify a covenant. And Abraham, this is really cool, set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. So he gives them a whole group of sheep and oxen, but then he takes seven lambs and puts them off by themselves, sevenfold. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you've set by themselves? And he said you will take these seven new lambs from my hand that they might be my witness that I dug this well. <laughs> In other words, I want to keep my well. That's all I'm asking for. And Abimelech's letting him graze his herds on his land, um, but Abraham wants to own this well. 
Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Beersheba actually means the well of the sevenfold oath. So there's these this signifier. Seven is a uh, number of completion. We had seven days in creation, or six plus the seventh day that made it complete. Beersheba is the furthest south region of Israel. We're way at the southern tip of Israel right now. So the covenant gets sealed. Gifts secure that seal. They set aside the lambs. This is totally out of the ordinary, which is why Abimelech asks about it. Also, Abimelech doesn't quite trust Abe yet. That's why he's asking for a covenant. And Abe's already lied to him once. So these seven sheep by themselves are really suspicious to him. Um, The well is totally worth negotiating for. That sounds like an odd thing to negotiate for to us. But in that territory, in the southern Israel, we're talking about, they call it wilderness. We call it desert. Those wells are life, and they're worth a lot. Another little piece that when they seal this, when the seven lambs uh, signifying peace between Abraham and the king, lambs become a symbol of peace forevermore. And lambs are one of the animals that you can give in the law for a peace offering. And Jesus Christ himself gets called the lamb of God or a peace offering between a king and another king. Um, And I think that's part of where we start to see, again, we hear these stories and they were meant to be symbols for our faith too. Verse 32, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Pinkel, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Note that there are no Philistines yet. This is Moses calling it the land of the Philistines because when Moses is assembling all these family scrolls and putting together Genesis, uh, he's trying to tell his reader where the territory was using current names, not the ones at the time of Abraham. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. This is interesting. We have one more planting by Abraham. Remember he made an an altar when he first came into the Holy Land? He made another altar where God talked to him. Then he made another altar where God talked to him. And he keeps making these altars in the middle of these tree areas which are, would have been used by the pagans for all these other religions. So he's doing it in there. But in this one, he plants the tree in an area that's a wilderness where there's a well of living water. And I think that's kind of cool because this is, the, this is one of those signifying places. He's going to build one more altar in the next chapter. Um, that well is also the only land that Abraham's ever going to own besides the spot where he's buried. So of the promise of his... his, his inheritance coming through, uh, he's going to have that. So that tree is a sign of a covenant. It's a permanent symbol. It's where we get the phrase putting down roots uh, because he stays there for a long time. I kind of like when we hear English phrases that came right from the Bible. So the idea of putting down roots, this is where we get that. Owning a well is then owning the land and Abraham gets to own it. I also like that Abe gives God the glory here, that very last line. He names the everlasting God. Uh, because the God's going to last after he is and what's going on. So I'm going for 22. I'm going to read all of chapter 22 and then come back and break it down. Because this is one of the most iconic stories in the Bible. It's one of the most memorable ones. It's what we get in Sunday school. So you get to this and and it's kind of tough. The other thing is when we get done with chapter 22, and I think this is before we read it, this is an interesting thought. We've hit about 50% of the stuff that people critique in the Bible. 
And you got to stop at some point, because when we get to this thing where God's testing Abraham, people have issues with this story too. But all the spots where I run into, especially in the academic world, you run into these really intelligent people that want to critique the Bible. And you always are like, well, show me where that is and where is that stuff? And they often point to the first 22 chapters of Genesis. It's one of those areas that the world wants to target and critique. And I think to myself, I don't know, I've just spent three months really digging into this stuff. Has there been anything that's challenged my faith or that I find that difficult to buy into? And for me, it's like, I really don't. I don't, when you just read it for what it is, there's nothing here that's that challenging. But if we talk about it without the book in front of us, it's really easy to debate or to get into lost in arguments about things. Um, but the primary premise of verse 1, chapter 1, Genesis, in the beginning, God, if you believe that premise, there's nothing that's, I think at least, that's been, we've gotten through that's been that difficult for me. But then that might be a question for when we're done today. Has there been anything in the first 22 chapters that's kind of set you reeling or that makes you challenges your faith or just, for me, it just strengthens my faith and makes me believe, wow, there's so much in here that God's setting up because he's telling this story that's going to last 5,000 years. And if God were going to write a book, it would look a lot like this, uh, at least for me. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. (laughs) Abraham's very blunt with that. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, again, he's an early riser, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to a place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a place far off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire in the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Oh, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is in the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. There are amazing correlations to Jesus here and foreshadowing his promise. I'm just going to give you like nine of them, all right? And see if you can spot them. This is kind of like a Where's Waldo book. And you're like, where are the comparisons to Jesus when you read that story? And like, or, or a search and find with the things where you got to circle the words, but they're all over in here. One, God promised both Jesus and Isaac well before they were born, 25 years before for Isaac and about a thousand years before for Jesus. So God promises both well in advance. Number two, both Isaac and Jesus are named before their birth. Genesis 17, 19 names Isaac and Luke 1, 31 names Jesus well before they were born. Both occurred and I'll quote, at a set time, Genesis 17, 21 and Galatians 4, 4. It's impossible. And when the mothers hear about the birth of both of these kids, both of the mothers think it's ridiculous and question God at some level. God then talks directly to both moms. And he doesn't talk to a lot of moms in the Bible, but he talks to both of them. Genesis 18.10 for Isaac and Luke 1.34 for Jesus. Both of them have angels announce their birth. Luke 1.21.28 for Jesus. Both were a joy to their father. Abe called him laughter and God said, I am well pleased. And both are called an only son even though they're not the only son. Did you catch that? Your only son? Uh, verse 2 for uh, this chapter in John 3.16, of course, for the New Testament. Both are obedient unto death. Isaac's going to lay down on that altar, and he's probably, most experts think he's right around 33 years old when this happens. And in Bible stories, they always have him as like a five-year-old. He's not a five-year-old. He's carrying the wood for his dad to build an altar that's big enough to burn himself on, right? So he's a big guy. Um, he's a healthy, strapping, well-grown, full-grown male in this thing. And oddly enough, Jesus was 33 years old when he died on a cross. They would have both been the same age. Um, both carry their own wood up a hill. And Mount Moriah, we'll get to this in a sec, he goes to the region, that would have been the region right around Jerusalem, and God has to point the hill out to him. I like to think it's the same hill that they both died on, because it's in the same region. Neither one really was a well-known hill, um, and we'll get to that in a second. And then both of them have impact, but most of their impact comes in their life after they... We have heard nothing about Isaac at this point. We heard very little about Jesus up until the point where he starts his ministry. And the real impact of Jesus came well after he gave up his life on a cross and he was rose from the dead. The real impact of Isaac is about to happen after this event. This is the thing that really starts the impact that he'll have in his life too. There are more comparisons, but let's take a quick closer look at this. Go back to verse one. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Tested is a tough word. It's nasa in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it means not... Because one would say God never tests us or he never tries to cause people to sin. And this isn't that kind of test. Nasa is the root of that word means to sniff at something before you try it, right? So God's sniffing at Abraham. He's testing his metal. He's giving him a challenge, or I like to think of it as a quest. Um, but he's giving him something to try to embrace 
Um, he's not just trying to get Abraham to screw up or sin. That's not the goal here for God. And I think that makes sense to most Christians. God's already, or Abraham's already proved his faith to God because God has said that. So at this point, he's dealing with a man who's living and getting up early and obeying God completely. And that's when God tests him. So if that's true for Abraham, why would we think it would be any less for us? We struggle with our flesh, but at some point when we're obedient to God, that's when God really wants to see what we're capable of. Well, let's see what kinds of things we can put this person into and where they can serve. Uh, verse two, then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, there's two prepositional phrases there, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to one, on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So there is a mountain in the land of Moriah called Mount Moriah. There's a mountain there that people know about that has a name, but that this is a really specific spot that God's picking because he says, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he can't tell Abraham which mountain, which means that mountain doesn't have, it's an insignificant mountain. It doesn't have a name. So likewise, uh, right next to Mount Moriah is um, going to be a whole set of hills that wouldn't have had names. God has to point out that one. It says your only son, which is um, not entirely true. God has accepted that Abraham took the responsibility of Ishmael and gave it to God. Because even God says, your only son, Isaac. So God's actually honoring the fact that Abraham's not responsible for Ishmael right now, and he's not, he doesn't count. Um, God sees Abraham, sees Ishmael as his own at this point, not Abraham's responsibility. Whom you love, this is another Genesis first. This is the first time we see love in the Bible, um, which seems odd because uh, there's been tons of emotions already expressed in the Bible. We haven't actually seen the word love. Uh, the kind of love that's being talked about here is the sacrificial love, the love that you would give your life for someone. It's the same kind of love that's talked about in marriage, that husbands are supposed to lay down their life for their wives and be willing to give their life up. Uh, John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So in deep friendships, that's the same kind of love. Convicting wise, is there anyone in life, in this life that you'd give your life for? Is there anyone, a friend? I mean, obviously, Steph, I'd give my life for you. But there's, and my kids, I would do that instantly. And, but frankly, even as a teacher, and I got future teachers in the room, I would look out at my students and before the year would start, I'd take all 150 students and put their pictures on my seating charts and I'd start to learn all their names and I'd start to pray for them. And when I was teaching, we started to first see these school shootings. And I had to ask that question, if there were a shooter in this school, would I, would I tackle the guy? Because I'm meaty enough that I could eat a lot of bullets and save a lot of lives. And I always decided to myself, why am I here if I wouldn't give my life for these kids? Like at some point, that's a decision that we make. We choose to say, and I think we make that choice well before it ever happens. So when it happens, you're not thinking, you don't freeze. You know what you're going to do. And you're like, well, here we go. I'm coming, Lord. And you go do it and you take that out. But I decided even as a teacher that if I were really going to do that job well, I had to get to that point of sacrificial love. My life doesn't matter. Their lives do. And it's a decision you make. It's not an obligation. It's not a bond. It's not a prison sentence. It's not some sort of weird criteria of a cult religion. 
It's this self-sacrificial act of love. Moriah, on one of the mountains we shall just tell you, I just kind of talked about, this is the same ridge, the same set of mountains that Jerusalem and Golgotha are on. It would have been in that, and, and the Mount of Olives. It's the same region that we're talking about. Of all of those hills, uh, the Mount of Olives is probably the most visual, beautiful one, even today. And Jerusalem sits on a city where you see those photographs of Jerusalem. And it's always coming from the south where you can see the Temple Mount. It's beautiful. It's remarkable. What you never see in a photograph is Golgotha. It's a pitiful little rise um, on the north-ish side of Israel. And it's not remarkable. Right now, today, there's a parking lot that fills most of the base of that hill. And around the back, there's like a touristy spot and things like that. But it's it's an unremarkable little hill. It could be in your backyard. It's not a big thing. But it is a rise. It is a hill. And it's a likely spot where they would have done crucifixions because it's a worthless little hill. You don't put graveyards on your prime property. And you don't crucify people on gorgeous places that rich people want to make their homes. You usually do that stuff in the worst neighborhoods of your of that area and that sort of thing, which is why this hill would have never had a name if it is the same place. Again, that's totally just my... I think it's a perfect fit for what we see here with the comparisons between Isaac and Jesus. And the fact that we don't really know where that is, I think it's, I think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to be, yeah, it was the same hill. Um, a burnt offering later will be an atonement for the, oh, there's also a timing thing. It would take about an hour to get up Golgotha. Like there'd be trails and stuff. And we see this on the third day. He hands the wood over and he leaves the two servants with the donkeys it's too steep for donkeys to get up. Mount of Olives and Moriah itself, you just walk your donkeys right up the hill. They're huge. But Golgotha, you'd really just leave them at the bottom and you'd take about an hour and scamper up the side of this hill. Um, so it has to be a certain kind of hill that fits that description too. Anyways, that's just my thought. A burnt offering doesn't exist in the law yet, but it exists with Abraham. Um, and we should know that with a burnt offering, uh, it's later seen in the law that it's an atonement offering. It's an atonement for sin. Uh, and God's asking Abraham to give an atonement for sin or a burnt offering, and Abraham doesn't question it. There's something that Abraham's done that he needs to confess and he needs to get rid of because Abraham doesn't question God that he needs to do this. And even after Isaac gets saved, he still gives a ram to put on the altar to give a burnt offering, and Abraham actually does it. So Abraham is going up this hill feeling a little guilty about something. We just don't know what it is. Also, a burnt offering is not killing and torturing like the, the pagans did. It is not a witch burning. You don't burn animals alive in a burnt offering. You kill them quickly. You sprinkle their blood all over the altar. They're clearly dead before you even light the fire. So it is a quick, what you would call a merciful death when you do that sort of thing. It's like butchering a cow. Um, also, when we get to Leviticus 1, there's certain conditions to a burnt offering. Uh, and thanks to Steph, because I actually said, where's the burnt offerings in Leviticus? And she's like, I think Leviticus 1. And then I turned there and bam, it was, it's like the Bible knowledge is insane. So a, uh, it has to be a male without blemish. A burnt offering has to be voluntary. You have to choose to do it, which is why I think Isaac was on board with this. It has to be done before the Lord. And when you do a burnt offering and you do the actual killing, um, you actually have to put your hand on the animal's head. Um, 58 minutes and 40 seconds. All right. That'll be weird if people are listening to that and they don't know what I'm talking about. 
And I thought that was really cool because to kill Isaac, he would have had to put his hand on his head. It's a very intimate thing. You're supposed to not turn away necessarily when you do it. Um, you're supposed to feel the pain of the sacrifice because you're atoning for your own sin. Uh, then you sprinkle that uh, blood around the altar. You cut the thing up just like you're going to butcher it. And then you burn it up completely. And the last condition of a burnt offering is that it has to be a sweet savor before the Lord. In other words, the Lord likes the smell of barbecue because that's exactly what it is. Uh, and we just went to a barbecue place for lunch today. I tell you, you walk in the door and you smell that and you think that's a sweet savor. That's an amazing smell when you, when you, when you do that. Um, and I think that's cool. The other piece is uh, human sacrifice we would think is wrong. I think for Abraham to be asked by his God to do a human sacrifice wouldn't have felt so odd because every civilization around him from what we know from archaeology, they're all doing human sacrifice. I think it would have been disappointing because Abraham thinks he has a different kind of God. But at this point, he's like, well, if that's what God wants me to do, I guess I'll do it. But I think it would have been kind of heartbreaking for Abraham because he's doing what the world does. Um, and Abraham's just going to obey. He's been walking with God for too darn long now to go anywhere else. I still remember... Uh, when my father-in-law was having some doubts before he died, he knew he was going to die. He had ALS and he was just struggling with some theology and stuff like that. And I remember talking to him just going, my goodness, you've believed in Jesus Christ your whole life. Why would you doubt that now? Why would you get to this stage in your life and have any doubts about that? Hello, Sam. I forgot to hit record again. <laughs> Whoever's listening to this, you just missed eight minutes We'll continue. <laughs> Verses 1 through 6 look a lot like Jesus. That's the summary. <laughs> See if you can find the spots. So in verse 7, when he says, My Father, Jesus also cried out, My God, my God. But Abraham says, Here I am, my son. And Jesus never got an answer. And this is where the stories part way. And you think how heartbreaking that would have been for Jesus. He cries out for his father. And he's not there. And the end of the sentence for Jesus, Matthew 27, 46, is he, he quotes, Jesus quotes verse Psalm 22 and says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In other words, Jesus cried out for his dad and dad wasn't there. You think that's a horrible thing. Abraham gets to say, I'm right here. And if your son's going through something tough, you'd want to make sure you could be there. Then he said, this is a, Isaac saying this, look, the fire in the wood, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. The lamb isn't really given until the first century. John the Baptist, so notice that it's a goat that gets sacrificed. The lamb, this question Isaac asks, has been asked through all of history, where's the lamb of God? And where does it look for? And this question first gets asked here, but it's the same question that Jewish people ask all the way through to the first century. And it was John the Baptist that announced, behold, the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Here he is. And Jesus gets announced as that lamb right when he's baptized. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Also, God will provide for himself is Elohim Raha Se. Uh, Raha is to see oneself. Um, it's used over 800 times in the Bible. 
Um, and it always has something to do with to provide for yourself or to see for yourself or to look after something for yourself. Um, when they do it here and they just says God will provide for himself, it means God will see himself provided is the literal translation. Um, the only other times where it's used in this way, this provide way, not see for yourself, is in reference to David. And there's another one with uh, Gad and the law that's there. And But this, the rest of the time, this is more accurately translated, God will see himself as a sacrifice, which is an interesting translation in the Hebrew. Um, other references where it's this God, and we've already seen in Genesis the same Ra'ah word. In fact, this was cool because I feel like I'm learning Hebrew. I saw the Ra'ah and I'm like, I know I've looked this word up before. So I went back in Genesis and God saw for himself the light in Genesis 1. God saw that it was good um, uh, later on. And so we see, we've already seen multiple references to Ra'ah, but it always means to see for yourself or to see something. So God will see himself as a sacrifice um, is a better translation of Elohim. Ra'ah said, and God saw himself as a lamb. My son, God will see himself the lamb burnt for an offering is is another completely legitimate way to translate that sentence. However, that wouldn't have made a lot of sense until you knew the story of Jesus Christ. But once you know the story of Jesus Christ, you're like, wow, that could very well be exactly, it was meant literally what it was, was saying there. So the answer of where the, where, where the lamb of God is actually comes right off Abraham's tongue and he's the first one to wonder where the lamb is. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. First of all, I like that he laid the wood in order, because that means that Abraham must have been a very meticulous person to put that phrase in there. And I like type A people. I think they're awesome. And then they came to the place. Wait a sec. The place? I remember there was a movie that had Tom Cruise in it and part of his detective work is somebody had mentioned the auto parts store and then he comes back and he says, wait a second, where's the auto parts store? And they're like, I don't know, there's like four or five in town. And he goes, no, 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 the auto parts store. There's one of those that everybody knows about. Which one is it? And that's how he interrogated the person. And, is that Jack Reacher? Okay, thanks, Grant. Anyways, I thought this was kind of interesting. They came to the place uh, this is highly orchestrated. God has picked a place for this to happen. And what a picture that is. Um, Isaac's around 33 years old at this point. He could have easily fought and wrestled with Abraham and probably kicked the 133-year-old man's butt. I mean, this is not something where he would have been overpowered, um, but he's tied up, he's bound, uh, and he is laid on the altar of wood. Um, I think it's really interesting that it's phrased like that and laid him on the altar um, and that the wood is noted there because it, it's further reflection of the cross, the wood that Jesus is going to be crucified on. But we don't really get revelation on that for another 2,000 years. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham's had to give up his family now three times. He had to leave his relatives and give them up back in, uh, to leave his father and that crew. He had to part ways from Lot and give up his adopted son, Lot. He had to separate from Ishmael and give up his son, Ishmael. 
And God's basically blessed him in each of these times. So if God's saying, I want you to now give up Isaac, Abraham's convinced that God can do miracles. He can actually raise Isaac from the dead if he wants to, which would have been more of a symbol. But I think God has some mercy and he goes, I don't need this symbol to go that far. In fact, the only person that should have to give up their only son is me. And I'm the only one that should have to endure that. And he doesn't make Abraham endure it. He has some mercy here. But he does see that Abraham's willing to obey. God knows his heart. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. Again, I just love the phrasing on this. When you're called and God calls you to just here I am, to not argue with God, to not, it's just here I am, what do you want me to do? And he said, don't lay a hand on your lad. Remember putting on a burnt sacrifice in Levitical law, you had to lay your hand on their head while you did it. Don't lay a hand on him for, or to do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. James highlights that Abraham shows his faith through his works which is interesting because Abraham never actually kills his son, which is an interesting kind of piece, right? Because we accredit to Abraham his works are that of faith. God tests his children to verify our faith and to strengthen us, to make us more confident. And this last test for Abraham, he's really going to pretty much live happily ever after in the next couple chapters. God is more into the sacrificial heart um, than anything. So he emphasizes again, your only son. God sees this as the ultimate confirmation. Um, And he does this so we can do the same thing. We need to be willing to give up ourselves to sacrifice ourselves to serve God. Um, We know for sure. So ultimately, the ultimate act of Abraham showing that he loves God is to be willing to sacrifice his son. The ultimate way in which we know or this confirmation that's given here it's that fear and love of god that's confirmed in this willingness to give up his only son it's that same confirmation that we should have because god did give up his only son and i think that's the kind of piece there where if it's good enough for god to be satisfied with abraham's willingness to do it it should be good enough for us that we've seen a god that's done it to himself that has given up his only son so we should we are not better than God and that we shouldn't see that God loves us and God wants to save us when he gives that sacrifice. In verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket of by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. God then ultimately does not demand human sacrifice and never does anywhere in the Bible. Uh, that sets him apart from the pagan religions And probably Abraham was as relieved that God was something better than the pagan gods as he was to not give up his son. It was willing to, but he didn't have to. He still had to atone for something that we don't really know what it is. So God provides a way for Abe to do that. Symbolically, we don't atone for our own sins. That's faith by works. We get the provision of God's sacrifice that atones for us. So in the same way that Abraham didn't have to provide for his own sacrifice, Neither do we. Um, And what a gift that is. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide is familiar Hebrew words, Jehovah Jireh. So if you're in any sort of Christian community, you've probably heard Jehovah Jireh. It's a commentary from Moses here. 
because he's saying even to this day so we're finishing a narrative um, and it's almost like the moral of the story is that the Lord provides and we don't have to provide for ourselves. naming a place is a way that we've seen in the Old Testament that they keep their stories and they tell their stories so Abraham's going to tell this story again and again and again probably Abraham's great grandkids got sick of hearing this story right because it's the story where he's going to tell it when he says look God provides Abe wants others to know that God's provided in the way that his offering was given uh, let me say that again Abraham wants others to know that God's provided for him and even provided for his own atonement not naming it meant that God tests things because Abraham could have said this is the hill where I was tested this is the hill where Isaac carried a big load of lumber but he names it God provides which I think is Abraham seeing the best in this situation he doesn't resent God for this test he's actually a changed person and like any grateful believer he's moved by God's love not by God's testing and I think that's a strength for us Christians as we tend to look back on things and see the best and like, oh, this is when God did that in this way. But we're in the middle of it. We're miserable creatures because we're dealing with tough times, trials, challenges, our own flesh, Satan in the world and everything else going on around us. But we tend to look back on things and say, yeah, but overall, I became a better person through all that. And I think that Abraham does the same thing. One question then that you can wrap up this 22nd chapter on is ultimately this is our first love our first love is that god is good and he provides for us this is the first love for abraham it's what gives him the strength to do this with his son is he knows that god's provided for him and loved him through his whole life and that's our first love that's that same thing saying boy if you've been believing this your whole life and you've been blessed by it your whole life and there's power in the words your whole life why would you come to some point at the end of your life and doubt that it should be enough to carry us through our whole lives but we need to keep our first loves. In Revelation 2.4, one of the accusations made against the church in Ephesus is that it's forgotten its first love. And he says, look, you've done all these nice things. You're a happy church. You've done good stuff and you've hosted and harbored my people. But I have one thing that I hold against you in Revelation 2.4. I hold against you that you forgot your first love. You're not in love with me anymore. You're in love with being a church and being that pillar of the community but you're not in love with Jesus and you've forgotten that first love that I sacrificed myself for you and that I will provide for you in your life and those are the things that we need to remember and hold to and from this point forward in the Bible Abraham kind of lives happily ever after and we're going to transition into the story of Isaac his story begins and moves on Uh, so we'll make that transition in chapters 23 and 24 Um, And ultimately, we get this long narrative of Abraham as a model for our faith. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love your word. We love the stories that you have. Lord, this is a tough story. This is a tough narrative, Lord, that you would test anyone in this kind of way. But Lord, you're doing it because you're writing a story. And you write a story with our lives. And Lord, we're either humble, willing servants that can submit to that and trust you, to trust that you have a plan, Uh, that you are unlike any other God. You are above and beyond anything that we can make with the works of our hands. Lord, you're the creator of the universe and the maker of our souls. Lord, when we woke up this morning and we breathed air in our lungs, we didn't do that because of our own strength or our own planning. We were sleeping. Lord, you put that breath on our lungs. So if we're here, we're here because you want us to be here. 
you've called us to be here and we're part of a story that you're writing across the nations and across time so lord we just thank you for that honor and that privilege we may never own any land in this world lord because this world is not our own we may voyage but the inheritance you've promised lord goes so far beyond what we see in our lives so lord we hold to those promises we hold to what you've got in front of us and lord even if all we ever own is a well uh, we just lift you up and we we, we want to be thankful for that well and we want to know that what we've done we've done with our own hands lord uh, in service to you we want to give you all the glory uh, when when miracles happen in our lives lord help us to be like sarah and abraham and just turn that credit back to you and to praise you for your mighty hand and your mighty works um, lord help us to serve you even when it seems tough when it seems hard Lord, we not only appreciate the faith of Abraham here and his perspective, Lord, I want to lift up Isaac's perspective just as an obedient son, uh, as a, a man that has faith, not having heard directly from you, but having heard from his dad who heard from you. Uh, what an amazing man of faith Isaac is and what a blessing he is and a model he is at that age in his life, Lord, where he can serve you and serve his father and to be together with his father in service to you, Lord. Um, help us to be men of faith and women of faith, uh, that we can honor you in what we do too, Lord. Help us to put, a, put away the things of this world, even when we want to hold on to them and have affection for them. Uh, Lord, help us to put them away because we're not going to, we can't have a house that's divided against itself. A house divided against itself does not stand. Uh, and there's no room in our hearts uh, to hold on to the world and to hold on to the promise at the same place, Lord. We have to trust in you. And Lord, help us to just do that. It's such a difficult thing. And we're blind to it most of the time. So help us to have good people in our lives, husbands and wives, friends, parents, um, fiancés, Lord, that help, to help us to see areas where we can serve the promise more than serving the world. In Jesus' name we pray.